brought to you by Elevate Uplift. You're listening to Rooted in Healing. I'm your host, Meg Sunga. Tribal and communities of color carry histories of colonialism, imperialism, slavery, displacement, and other forms of violence. Today, I'm chatting with Mira Youssef, Executive Director at Monsoon, Asians and Pacific Islanders in Solidarity. Join us as we unpack our personal experiences with intergenerational trauma, as well as break down trauma commonalities found in communities of color. Welcome back, Mira. How are you? Hi, Meg. I'm doing well. Um, just enjoying this beautiful weather here in Iowa. In <laughs> <laughs> in luxurious Iowa. Yes. I love that. Yes. I love that. Um, Mir and I have connected um, over the course of our time together here at Elevate Uplift because Mira is also Filipina. Yes, yes. yes. We have that shared identity, shared lived experiences there. Um, and as we even were prepping for this intergenerational trauma episode, I think we both got excited because we have – the shared lived experiences of it as Filipinas, but also from the different angles. So I'm just really excited to get into this particular topic with you, Mira. Thank you for trusting me and joining me on today's episode. Of course. Uh, to kick off today's episode, um, Mira, what is an intergenerational trauma? What is it um, for our listeners to kind of get that baseline? So I'm just going to um, define it based on my own kind of experiences as well, how I see it. Absolutely. So intergenerational trauma is some is for me is the same as historical trauma, but it's also uh but it's it's a trauma that is passed down from one generation to another. Mm. So it's basically more an individual for me, intergenerational. It's yeah. also but it can also manifest in a community, right? So then that's for me like that's also then historical trauma because it's a community that's uh, like if something, if something traumatic that had happened, maybe a community violence that had happened, then it's passed down to that community. But intergenerational trauma is for me, it's also the same where it's one, maybe one individual, but a family. And then it can also be a community that, you know, the trauma, the violence, the things that we have experienced during a traumatic experience mm -hmm. or a traumatic, like a violence that had happened, then it's passed down to the next right. generation and the next right um so for me we need to um part of the work that we do as like for example for um the work that we do at monsoon is stopping the passing of mm. trauma, right so that is one of the work that we need to do as advocates for victims and survivors is then how to how do we interrupt that Right. So yeah. interrupting intergeneral intergenerational trauma is part of our work. So wow. when you are assisting one person um, who has been uh, maybe a victim and survivor of uh, rape or sexual violence, mm -hmm. then we want to make sure that whatever uh, that this person had experienced will not pass it down to her children. Right? So those are the things for me that is what intergenerational trauma is. I think you put the, the all of that in such lovely terms, uh, Mira. And I, and I think 
you know, it's, it, you bring up what is essentially my next question where, you know, we have to recognize it, acknowledge it in order for it to not be passed down again continuously, right? Um, you know, this is the Rooted in Healing podcast. So it, it has to start with, I think staying rooted starts with the recognition of, of where these traumas start and occur and continue. So I guess my next question for you is, is how do we how do we how do we recognize it when it's happening or how do we pinpoint it? How do we name it? Um, and then how do we break that cycle or, or where what are those first steps um, in your work? I think naming is important, just like mm-hmm. you said, recognizing and naming. Right. Um, so I, and, and then I well, you know, for me. An individual, a vic- let's just say a victim or survivor is a part of a community, mm-hmm. part of a family. So those things are, so knowing not only the history, the story, the narrative of that individual, but it's also what is the story, the narrative of that family, and also then the community. Mm-hmm. So if you are, for example, working with the Filipino community, like, right, mm-hmm. it is important to know just the history of colonialism in the Philippines, Mm. You know, mm-hmm. we need to go to our historical, um, like just narrative experiences. Yeah. In order for us to really like, how, why is this manifesting in our community? So if you're thinking about then of like, for example, Filipino community, like uh, let's just say sexual violence, no? Yep. If a, uh, if child sexual abuse is happening in the community, so there needs to be then um, even looking at the history or the story of the experiences of the family Mm. or maybe the experiences of that community. So for example, so if we're working with one, we need to know all those layers of where this person is. Like who is their community? Right. Because the community affect us, right? right? So it is important then for us to go being curious about individuals. Who are they? Where are they from? Uh, what right. is their community like? What is their family like, right? right? So for me, a really good advocate or a person who really do does community work is someone who is really curious about not only someone who is in front of them, but who is like, who is she bringing in on the table? Like she brings in her family history. She brings in, he or she will bring in her community history story. Right. So you cannot separate that story from the bigger picture, right? So mm. for me, how we see it is um, we will see then a connection between her story and another person from that community story. Right. So that's how we see it. Um and I think it's just really uh, when we're doing this work, it, we need to go beyond just the individual. Um, right. So that's how, you know, hopefully I'm answering your question. No, yeah. I'm going all over the place. No, it's okay. No, 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 that's okay. I think you said a couple of things that I I just, I'm, I'm going to highlight right now is, you know, when when working with the people that you work with, working with survivors, I love the fact that you said advocates need to be curious, right? They need to be curious enough to understand who this person is, but also, like you said, who this person is bringing with them in these spaces, meaning all of their past 
and all of the individuals also connected to them, aka the community, because that helps shape and inform these experiences. Because we also know that these experiences are not singular, right? They're connected to other people and other things. This is why we have a whole podcast. And mm-hmm. so I think that, you know, as people are listening, whether you're someone who's in this work, you know, your first year, or if you've been doing this work um, for a very long time, um, like Mira and some of our other guests, you know, it's it's still remembering that we cannot isolate these stories um, because they are connected. Yeah. I think that's so important to, to uplift. And, and then Meg, I just want to bring up that uh, sometimes trauma will manifest like in your body, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe even like why certain communities will have certain health issues because sometimes it is because of the for example what had happened to that whole community if genocide had happened if slavery had had happened so therefore those are manifesting in our bodies so therefore then the community the the individual will will have those health issues because of those trauma that had happened right absolutely and then also we have to look at trauma also then for me when i'm thinking about it it's also what just let's say for example food mm-hmm. there are certain food that was brought in during colonization and then yep. had changed the 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 so-called you know the you know the way that we cook certain things the indigenous sure. way so therefore there might be certain then so we will have diabetes Mm-hmm. So those manifestation of colonialism is also then manifested in the way that we eat, that we take care of our body, and then right. there's some health issues. Absolutely, right. So I I think that's that's when you were asking like how does it manifest like physically, you know? Yeah. Um, and I I think it is important for us then to look at not just what the person is also maybe sharing, but also yeah. their health. Yeah. What are the issues that are coming up, right? Yeah. No, and I think that's a great way to tie in also a little bit about um, something that I was unpacking um, with my sisters, actually. Um, one of the things that we recognize as intergenerational trauma for sure has impacted our mental health um, and all of the siblings um, whether we've talked about it or not, and for my sisters and I, this was the first one, first time we've ever talked about it, it was just how our childhood experiences, our childhood traumas have affected our mental health, and we all suffer from anxiety and depression in different ways. And it's it's been so monumental to be able to share and and hold space for each other, knowing that you know that's out in the open. Like wow, like it's because you know our parents had to to make hard choices, or it's because you know, two of my siblings had to stay in the Philippines and two of the, me and my other sister got to go to America, how we both, you know, there wasn't necessarily one was getting a better treatment than the other, but it was just like, we both had hard things, but we didn't know that each other were having hard times because we were kids and we can't talk about it. So I think, you know, for, for anybody going through, um, big life experiences, traumatic life experiences, it's, it's going to manifest in, um, physical obvious ways maybe or more noticeable ways and then also that mental health piece right where it just comes up out of nowhere and you're like wow that's that's why I'm anxious all the time or that's why I can't get out of bed and have severe um, depression so I just wanted to tie that piece in because I'm just reflecting you know on what you just said and I was like yep that's 
that's intergenerational trauma right there. Yeah, I, I think mental health for me when I we think about mental health, I also think because it, for me it's part of the physical, right? Right. So definitely what you said about, but then now I think we we have so much, um, you know, about mental health. I think it's discussed more. Mm-hmm. Imagine the generation, the, your older sisters who grew up in the Philippines, right? Um, or me, like me myself, like I came in when I was twelve years old to the U.S. So mm. mental health, depression, all of that stuff, or you know, like or anxiety is not something that we talked about, right? So therefore, it's something that is like maybe I have it, maybe I I don't know, like maybe I had depression. Right. So then when my child. Um, then is manifesting that I did not know how to deal with it, even mm-hmm. though I have masters in social work, right? Mm-hmm. So like, so it's very different because, like, how my mom or my maybe my grandmothers have done it is like they don't. We don't talk about mental health, right? We don't talk because something that is like new to us, but maybe there is already something that is being like, what is it that, so for me, that is also part of this intergenerational trauma is also mm-hmm. passing off the wellness or the healing part. Mm. Our ancestors, our great, our, our great, great grandparents or great parents, they already maybe had been doing certain things Mm-hmm. that is healing or for wellness that maybe during like us during the diaspora then me like being migrating to the u.s and being disconnected from that community then we've lost it wow is that making sense yeah. so there are you know there's no way that our community are you know the people before us they did not they just didn't name it as such right right so therefore, what were the ways that they were doing it? We don't know, especially for Filipinos, because I think of all Southeast Asians, we are the one that I feel like so westernized. Mm-hmm. Mm. We are so westernized that we don't really. And then for me, there's also this issue of when we want to so-called go back to our roots, then it becomes like the ex- exotic. We, we try to like all of a sudden we need we are romanticizing the indigenous folks in the Philippines. Mm. Want, no? So we're doing that. So yeah. there is something about immigrant, my immigrant Filipinos specifically that has those kind of. We have a lot of stuff. We have a lot of shit. Anyway. <laughs> because yes. it's like, we don't, we don't really, it's like, what is it that our, that our, you know, like people before us have done? I right. don't, you know? Um, right. So those are the things that when we think about mental health, but now I'm so glad that we are talking about it. Yeah. And I remember um, back in maybe early 1990s when I was part of Gabriela Network, Mm. Um, so that was the, you know, the, the so-called, the chapter, the, the U.S.-based chapter of Gabriela Philippines, no? Mm. Okay. So then I remember, like, they were already talking about the high suicide rate of Filipino teenagers, Filipinas specifically, mm. uh, that were living in San Diego, California. So this is, like, early 1990s, that there is something yeah. going on already. So, but now I think folks are talking about it. So I think it's good yeah. uh, that we are now discussing about mental health. 
but then I think there is a need to find what are the the wellness practices, healing practices that are rooted from our traditions mm-hmm. that is not romanticizing it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I 100% agree. <laughs> I 100% agree. Because I do feel like sometimes I see wellness practices and and just other things that are rooted in Filipino indigenous experiences. And I I don't know, I feel I feel weird wanting to integrate it into my life or sometimes um like I, I don't know if it's you know, like, am I allowed to like some of these? Am, am I allowed to explore some of these things? Um, a piece, and I'll just use this as an example. One of the things that I wanted to do at one point, and maybe will continue, it really depends. And as far as like my own healing journey for finding, and I think any American born Filipino, Filipina can understand this is that, you know, trying to connect stronger to our culture one of the things I wanted to get was a tattoo but I wanted to get like a traditional indigenous tattoo and that was part of my healing journey but then I was like is that just (laughs) co-opting like is that is that just um is that something that I'm even allowed to participate in I don't know (laughs) I don't really know so I have to take a step back and try to like sit with these feelings for a little bit because maybe there's other ways that I can incorporate connecting with my culture, healing, um, healing with my culture. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally um, agree with you about that. But I think each one of us, specifically Filipinos, I think we're becoming like more Filipino-centered here. But, but it's okay. So, right? But what's so interesting is, you know, Filipinos, like we're part of different ethno-linguistic group, right? We are. So I'm Kapampangan. Mm-hmm. So I'm indigenously Kapampangan, but just like westernized. Sure. So we have to look at those different, so you have to look at your own so-called ethno-linguistic group, if you're Tagalog, if you're Visaya, if you're mm-hmm. Iloko, right? So those are the things for me that we need to like, um, what are then our, um, like if I want to get a tattoo, then it will be like something that is kapampangan. Mm-hmm. No? Instead of like, if it, it no, not Ifugao or Igorot, no? Because right. I'm not that. I'm not from right. that. But they're still Filipinos in general, but I am Kapampangan, so I'm very Kapampangan, right? Yeah. So those are the things. And one thing too, Meg, um, how um what I've been noticing too is part of the the thing, the, the trauma that that we inherit from our mothers or our family, our ancestors, is sometimes how we see, especially in the Filipino community, what I'm seeing is sexuality. Mm, let's talk about, about sex, it. Right? About yes. Sex. Because um, I remember, like, there were times that, um, I remember, like, there were times when at the age of 12, I rem- started, like, you know, like, because we're island people, so we go to the beach, right? Right. I w- I started wearing two-piece. And mm-hmm. I remember, like, how at the age of 12, like, I'm already being looked at by men. Yep. Older men, right? There's, yep. there's already a sexual sexualization of right. girls. But then women, like my aunties, it, they don't, it, it doesn't, like, it doesn't, they don't question it. 
So for me then, so when we're thinking about then, how then do we protect our young, our, our children, yep. you know, boys and girls of that against child sexual abuse? So if we are just saying that older men are looking at you in that way and, and, and then the older women that sees it does not stop it, then right. things can happen, no? So for me, I think that is part of when I think about intergenerational trauma, that's part of it. That's an example of it. Is then the sexualization of, you know, I, I think we as women identified, you know, cis women, sometimes we are part of the issue. Absolutely. So, especially like now I'm seeing it like in Filipina, in, in like Filipinos, Filipina here, like they, you know, like it, everything is about, you know, like, there's no question about, they're not questioning it. Right. So I, so then I'm kind of like, wow, you know, how then do we have a discussion about child sexual abuse when don't, we don't even like question, right? you know, how we see, how we sexualize, especially girls. Mm-hmm. you know when you're about to be in that puberty so right. that is one thing that i sometimes i see as you know as a filipino woman filipina that um that i you know like i know that it was ba- passed down to my mother and then mm-hmm. i kind of saw that and i ended that with my child right mm. i'm like Mm-mm, no you know because i then can can like critically look at it it's like okay this is what's going on and no that's gonna stop Right. So interrupting it is just being aware of of what had happened to my community. And especially me who grew up in Olongapo City, which is a the where there was a US military base where mm. there was already this this uh, sexualization of Filipinas because they are part of the sex trade. Right. So that right. is for me a trauma that was then passed down to me. Right. Oh, How do I see wow. sex? How do I see over sexualized myself when I was younger? Because it was part of my growing up. Right. So so those are the things that I think we need to have a discussion with young people. It's like, how do you see yourself? We're not yeah. saying that sex is bad, but then what is healthy sex? Oh, snaps. Right. So is that, is that kind of making sense? Yes. Yes. Because you're basically sharing my you know, you're, you're connecting to my lived experience, right? So American born Filipina, um, growing up in predominantly white spaces, right? So I I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Kansas and Texas. And I think the American culture pushed me into, um, being sexualized early too, right? Cause like magazines and, and TV and just, and then the nineties at the time, of course, is just like high fashion, um, but also the fetishization of Asian women started coming into my life early because there was a point where like, you know, even as a young kid, I was getting that feedback from men, from people that was just like, oh, wow, you're so pretty. What are you? Right. And it's, mm-hmm. and, um, and it was just very confusing. Cause I'm like, what does that have to do with me being pretty? <laughs> like, can I just be pretty? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Filipino aspect of it, really, our culture was, it was very confusing for me because there was that very conservative Catholic side of my culture that was like, be careful what you wear or don't show your shoulders at church. That mm-hmm. 
that very um, uh, uh, sexist at best <laughs> part of our culture. Yes, um, yes. But then also my aunties being like, oh, wow, you look so skinny. You look so good. Like, you know, do you have a boyfriend yet? Where's your boyfriend? And boyfriend like early, right? Not even like high school. Like they're always asking me like, who or what or what's going on with my, you know, personal, my, the, what's the cheese meese in my life <laughs> with yes. that? Yeah. So it's just like, yeah. So it's just all of these conflicting messages. And then me assuming, okay, well, maybe I need to be, you know, cute or sexy to be noticed. But then also I need to be careful and quiet at other times. It was very confusing. It was very confusing. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think that then affect how we will see, how we will see if someone is a victim or a survivor of sexual violence, right? Yeah, um, because they themselves could be then um, trying to figure it out or as confused when they said, you know, there's just a lot of like there, there's just so many different uh, so-called um, messages that are coming in, right? Right, and then there's that then the victim blaming. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I think it is then for me when we're thinking about intergenerational trauma, and being from a certain community, and then if the trauma is sexual violence, we need to really think about talk about the the sexualization of certain women. Yes, in that community, in that yeah, in that community, in that for example, if we think about. Uh, the African American experience of slavery, the, the enslaved people, for, you know, the the ones who were stolen from Africa, right? Yes. So then, that needs to be then brought in of then how are they being sexualized? Right. Um, same as like certain like Latina women are also sexualized, like, and then right. so and then Asian women in general are also sexualized. So right. therefore, for us, we really need to figure that. You know, we need to like integrate all of that, and when we're thinking about wellness and healing and trauma, mm-hmm. because it's not as it's complicated. Yeah, it's so complicated. But sometimes the solution is just really talking about it, just like what we are yeah. now. Yeah, right. Um. So for totally. me, when you said something about like your experiences growing up, and especially being you know born and raised in the U.S. And that confusing about your religion and then how how then your community is seeing you, it's mm-hmm. confusing. Mm-hmm. Especially for a young person. Like if you're young, you're like, what is going on? Yeah. So I think just creating spaces for our young people, for our community, just to discuss this. Yeah. You know, we don't have to give them the solution. It is right really to them. Um, you know, um, it's just this. this talking about it then makes them name it yeah it's just naming and then like acknowledging it okay you know i have issues with this okay how then do i how do i interrupt it how do i question it how do i not pass it to my future children if i decided to have future children or right my my nephews and nieces or whatever right yeah it's it's naming things without shame right it's being able to being able to support people, you know, in what is going to be a deep reflection and, and, you know, being able to talk through some, some tough things and it might get uncomfortable, but to really just reassert that this was, this is a conversation without shame. We want folks to feel good working through 
whatever they want to work through in yeah. spaces that we, yes. you know, that we hold. So with advocates, with other folks in our community, whoever you're trying to heal with and, and um, what your healing journey looks like, it just, it should always be without shame. Um, but I think when it comes to intergenerational trauma, I think there's always an element of shame connected to it. And that's, I think, why we're afraid to talk about it. Oh, I totally agree. Totally. Um, I, yeah, that shame, I think, is... Um, and that's why you have to create those safe spaces where there's no judgment. Right. Right. And also, I kind of also want to bring up the this thing where creating spaces does not mean that folks who are part of those spaces or who wants to take part of those spaces need to disclose. Mm. Um, there is there is sometimes... Um, there is sometimes there is this thing about you know folks who are in this work yep. like it seems like it seems like they're forcing disclosure when in reality for me it is just important just to be like there and they yes. might be listening but they don't have to share anything they don't even have to share that they are survivors or victims right. because maybe what is going on then with that person i'm just kind of like assuming is that when they are in those spaces and they hear people, you know, sharing, the ones who are comfortable in disclosing, sharing, then they just listen and then they're just like, okay, I'm not alone. Yep. And then I am with other folks who had been in this situation. Yes. So I think when we're thinking about safe spaces, that there's no need for disclosure and there needs to be like just this thing of that assuming that folks are there just to be with other people. Mm-hmm. So part of the ways of when we're doing like our work at Monsoon and also with Napisa is just creating spaces where we could just have conversation mm-hmm. or not even have any conversation or just to do things like maybe cook together or eat together. Right, right. Um, and then that's it. And, yeah. you know, so I think we need to shift. So when we're thinking about so-called intervention of, mm-hmm. of you know, especially when we're thinking about intergenerational trauma, is just creating spaces where people just be in community. Yep. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It doesn't like have to you. be complicated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, me and you. Yeah. Because I think that is our community. To be honest with you, I think that is the wellness in our Filipino community and other mm-hmm. communities that is all about community is I think the solution is being in community. Yeah. You know, you could just like, you know, the Filipinos here in Iowa, they love to party, the elders. Because <laughs> they don't want to be isolated. Right. They want to be, because that's, you know, they they love to be together just to eat food, just to be yep. in good company, because they want to be, you know, in the Philippines, where like, we hear our neighbors. It's so yes. noisy, right? So noisy. Hearing <laughs> next door neighbor, they're doing karaoke. Yes. And, you know, there's no silence as most. None. No. At all. So, Mira, what advice would you give to organizations and advocates to help them better recognize intergenerational trauma and the impact that it can have on survivors? As I stated earlier, I think just being um, curious about that individual that is in front of them, okay, beyond that individual, but also knowing about the family, the community, uh, their immigrant story, especially if it's coming from an immigrant community or um, 
just their the story of that community where that individual is from especially if they're working with communities of color and mm. i think that is a crucial i think for any organization serving the community they need to be curious about that okay. so me being you know having um you know a bachelor's degree in history i'm like the perfect person to work with <laughs> yes because i'm all about that right i so then because so then you will then think about not just the healing of that one person, but also like that family, that community is also as crucial. Okay. Um, there's also a need, like when we're thinking about individual healing, when we, we need to like just, you know, I just want to like highlight the, the importance of family healing and community healing when we're working with the individual. Yeah. Because we need to understand that the trauma that, that that person in front of you had experience can also been maybe a manifestation of her past her you know her family's trauma so then now it is then important to end and interrupt that in order for her not to pass it down so part of our work the organization's work is also interrupting that, is ending that, um, and working. It's almost a prevention, no? So if we think about yeah. prevention work, that is also the interruption of intergenerational trauma. Um, I think we're forgetting that community organizing prevention work are the same, but it's also changing something. It's changing oppressive uh, practices, oppression mm. in general, in order right. for us to have a better community, better society. Because we don't want right. people to be hurt. We don't want people to be like carrying trauma uh, that they are not then, you know, like we just want healthy folks. Yes. Mentally, physically, emotionally, emotionally, everything. We just want everything. And I think that is really our mission is like having that. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've been listening to Rooted in Healing. Thank you to my guest this week, Mira Youssef. The Rooted in Healing podcast is an Elevate Uplift production. It is hosted by Meg Sunga and produced by Idea Pig Productions. Show notes, research, and copy editing by Mary Taylor Coley. Special thanks to Elevate Uplift and our partners, the Minnesota Indian Women's Sexual Assault Coalition, the National Organization of Asian Pacific Islanders Ending Sexual Violence, the National Sexual Violence Resource Center, and the Resource Sharing Project. Stay rooted and follow us on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. For transcripts, show notes, and additional resources, head to elevateuplift.org.